outlaws driving their throbbing steel machines. Defiling whatever they touch. We want to be free to ride on the machines without being hassled by the man. Yeah, we don't want nobody telling us what to do. We don't want nobody pushing us around. Hey everybody, welcome back to Chopper Profits. I'm Mike, I'm your host, and um, today on our show we have uh, someone who's been a member of a motorcycle club for over 40 years uh, during the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He lived a fast-paced lifestyle, got him the first successful RICO conviction in 1983. Lucky him. And uh, he did 30 years in prison, and during that time uh, he educated himself. He became a published author and a successful businessman. He's proof that anyone can turn things around. Please welcome to the show, Roadblock. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Roadblock. You know, it's um, first of all, it's an honor to have you on the show, and um, I've enjoyed our our conversations. Um, you know, prior to this interview, um, you have a lot of wisdom, and uh, you've seen a lot and done a lot. And I'm hoping that um, people listening to the show can can benefit from that. Um, first, you know, first question I, l- I always like to ask guests. Um, and, and it gets a variety of answers because obviously everyone's unique. Um, is what was your life like uh, growing up as a kid? What what was life like for you? I can tell you that in the beginning, in rural Georgia, where I was born and lived until I was about seven years old, they didn't have electricity in the rural areas. Mm. Everybody everybody that thinks they're poor now, they don't know what poor is. <laughs> we lived on a farm. My dad plowed with mules. And for a period of time, we didn't even have a, a motor vehicle. My grandfather had a truck that they used for farm purposes. But my parents and I had a horse and wagon. I went to church with my mom and dad in a wagon. I can remember going over to my grandmother on the other side of the family's house. And it was like about five miles away. We'd go in a wagon. I can remember jumping out the wagon and holding on to the tailgate and running along behind the wagon like it was fun, you know. Hmm. We didn't have refrigerators. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have anything. Anything except what we grew, what we canned, or what we made for ourselves. As I got older, we moved to Jacksonville in 1947. And I've been in Florida ever since. My dad was a Pentecostal holiness minister. And I think everybody understands that to be a fundamental minister that didn't believe in dancing and and uh, football and all this other stuff that everybody enjoys today. Yeah, it was just a, a little different childhood growing up. But my dad always did things with us. He cared us hunting, fishing, you know, and stuff that the family was always involved in. We always knew that we were loved, and he was pretty strict, but he always loved us, and he always cared for us. I've had a lot of time to think about my dad since he's passed, and I was really lucky to have a father like him, and a mother also. My mother was always a homemaker. The only time she worked was during World War II. She was a welder and building ships in the shipyard. 
My older sister gave me a bunch of family pictures not long ago, and I had her welding badge in those pictures, and I've got that saved now. That's awesome. I tell my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids about their grandmother. That's awesome. That's great, um, you know, just to be able to have that to help show, you know, not only the pictures to show the grandkids and the great-grandkids, but that's awesome. Mike, in Jacksonville, when I grew up in Jacksonville, we did a lot of things like sailing on the beach for a mullet, like row mullet and having fish fries at the church and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and all that stuff was a lot of fun. I started to work pretty early. I, I can remember the first paid job I did, I was 14 years old. And from there on, it was kind of like work and pay room and board at home, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm the oldest of seven kids. Wow. So I had plenty of experience with younger brothers and sisters. <laughs> and we're still we're still pretty tight. I lost uh, my mother, my father, and one of my brothers while I was locked up. And I lost my oldest son and my daughter. My oldest son while I was locked up. That was the worst thing that happened to me while I was in prison. And losing all them. In prison, you... The thing that hurts you worse is not being there for your family when they know you, you know, when they need you. I could do the time. I did what I did. Nobody made me do it, and I didn't blame it on anybody else. Mm-hmm. I did 30 years in there for a reasonably minor crime. So, being I was dissatisfied with the way the government treated me, I educated myself with paralegal and habeas courses from attorneys that were in there that, that had classes. Mm-hmm. I represented myself in five separate civil cases and two of them successfully. One of the most important cases I did, we went all the way to Chris Ann, my wife and I, is she was my lay assistant. I was in prison and she was my computer person on the street. Mm-hmm. We went all the way to Supreme Court with trying to correct erroneous, erroneous law enforcement statements mm-hmm. and found out that you can't correct them. The Supreme Court sent it back to the circuit mm-hmm. and allowed me to put opposing evidence in the file, but they never can collect, correct a law enforcement statement after statement after it's uh, uh, if it's something used against you in trial mm-hmm. and you go to trial and you don't correct it, then it's with you the rest of your life. Wow! So it's pretty important what you do. You can educate yourself or you can lay down and pray up, play all the prison games and all that kind of stuff and, yeah. and come out with no idea of what you're going to do or where you're going to go. I couldn't see that. Yeah. I was a warrior on the street. I'm a warrior now. My <laughs> weapons now is a pen and paper <laughs> and words, right? Exactly. And I try to be try to do a very good job of using them. Well, from what I've heard, I think you do. Um, at, at a young age you obviously learned what it was like to, to work and labor and, and take care of yourself. What, um, what did you do? You know, most people look forward to being 18 and kind of getting on their own. Uh, what was life for you like at 18? At 18, I was in the military. Okay. At 16, my family moved back to Georgia. Mm-hmm. There was very little to do in rural Georgia except for working in tobacco or, or pulpwood or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I was working in pulpwood, and pulpwood then was a real hard job. You didn't have all these skitters and stuff that they've got now. You had to cut the wood up and load it on the truck by hand. Hmm. 
So when I turned 17, I joined the Air Force and I escaped. <laughs> and from then on, it was that—that uh, that was the end of that lifestyle, right? What the? When you say you escaped, what was that like? Well, it put me out on my own for the first time, you know, actually, and and let me become responsible for everything that happened with me except what the military did for me. Mm-hmm. And it was different. That was the beginning of my, what I call growing up. When, you, when you're when a country boy, you're raised up to get old enough to go to work and get married and have kids. Right. Right. <laughs> so I tried that. And I've succeeded just about everything I've ever done for a short period of time. <laughs> were you um, were you married uh, prior to going to the military, or did you get married uh, after? I got married after I was out of the military. Okay. What was that time frame like when you uh, when you left the military? Well, when I got out, I, I come back home and and uh, first thing I did was got a girl pregnant. And the way I was raised, if you get a girl pregnant, you marry her. Right. So I married her. And uh, that's another story. <laughs> it didn't work out too well, but uh, I've got—I had a daughter and two sons. Mm-hmm. One of my sons died while I was in prison, and my daughter died since I've been out. I've got four grandsons and one great grandson now. Wow. So I'm looking forward to spoiling that little bugger. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when I'm assuming that this probably happened after you were out of the military, but when did you get introduced to motorcycles in general? When I was in 1971, when I was 30 years old, mm-hmm. my book, The Probate, pretty accurately portrays my introduction into the biker world mm-hmm. and the biker lifestyle. The, uh, Character in there, Joe Wilson builds his first motorcycle, meets his first bikers. When I come home, I was lived in a neighborhood, and it was kind of like my neighborhood. And if it was my neighborhood, it was my responsibility to kind of look after it. I don't know. I, I guess that's just the way I am, right? Mm-hmm. But I had a little crew, and we looked after our neighborhood. These bikers set up a chopper shop right out there in our neighborhood, and without say, without anybody uh, getting with anybody or anything. So some of the kids come to me and. Said Tony, these bikers are out there, and they think they're bad, and there's going to be some problems. You want to go check them out? <laughs> so I went to check them out, and I, it was a bunch of Vietnam vets that were back. That were, had been in a little a club in Jacksonville. It was a Navy club, mm-hmm. and they were building chopper motorcycles. So they invited me to go party with them. We went down to a. a Jacksonville Beach at that time, Smitty's was a bar down there that had battled the bands. You got to realize this is when Leonard Skinner was one percent, when Ronnie and them were just first starting. Right? We went down. And we had a little party and had a little altercation in Smitty's. We had to leave. We went over to Hawk's Nest and finally ended up the night there. One of the guys that was riding the motorcycle from the chopper shop got drunk, so the guy come to me and said. You think you can ride that motorcycle back to the chopper shop for me? I said, sure. I'd never rode a motorcycle before, right? <laughs> but I had a had a friend that, that was working there that showed me, you know, he told, showed me the gears and all this kind of stuff. I got on it and I rode it home. It, it was a panhead chopper, mm. low slung pretty thing too. <laughs> when 
when I left there and come across the intercoastal waterway, it was full moon. The moonlight was uh, gleaming off the water. The salt of marsh smell and that roar of that Harley Davidson. I cracked the throttle on that thing and I was hooked. <laughs> that was it. Before that, I had run. I was a stock car racer. Mm. I run uh, short tracks, NASCAR sanctioned short tracks in North Florida and South Georgia in the, the late model sportsman class, which is like a 427 Chevrolet. And uh, did pretty good. Right about the first, same time I met the bikers, I destroyed my car. Mm. And racing was getting to be so expensive then, I, I just didn't have the heart to go through all that again. Yeah. I built that car working on the carriers out at the Navy base for the shipyard out there. I, I worked on the resting, the resting gear and catapults on those gears. I was a pretty, pretty good uh, precision machinist. Mm outside machinist worked seven days a week to build a race car. I just couldn't go through that again. <laughs> and then when I met the bikers, it kind of like, I, I guess you could say that I was an adrenaline junkie because I, I had a craving for danger and excitement. I was catching uh, wild hogs and selling them to hunting clubs for these guys that go to a hunt lease to shoot the, the wild hog. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, were shooting hogs that I supplied in in Carolina and Tennessee and stuff like that for their for their hunting clubs, right? Mm-hmm. But I was catching them alive with a with a bulldog, and that's where you. It was a pretty dangerous situation. It was really really exciting. I was poaching gators and stuff like that. And so when I met the the bikers, that the adrenaline rush that I got with that big four twenty seven when I punched it down the chute. What nothing to that Harley Davidson when I run through the gears with the noise and, and the power combination, you know? Yep. And so I, I got into a little trouble there right to start off with, and I decided that I, I was going to join a motorcycle club. I went to Atlanta and probated with a club up there. And now for 42 years, I've been there. I've been there and done that. I'm not an active member in a motorcycle club today, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that I could ever be active in a motorcycle club again. I've done what I've done if somebody else has turned to carry the torch <laughs> is the way I look at it. Sure. I'm really interested in looking after my family and, and the books that I'm writing and and just getting keeping the memories alive. Yeah. What you've got to understand is that I did the 30 years in prison. And everybody tells me, well, Roadblock, I couldn't have done 30 years. And I ask them, what would you do? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, you only have three choices. Mm-hmm. You can tell on everybody you know and become a government snitch. Mm-hmm. You can commit suicide and you won't have to worry about it. Or you can do the time. Now, what do you think you would do? And you'd be surprised at the people that tell me, I don't know. Hmm. At least they're being truthful, right? Yeah. I think that's right? that's something only... You know, if you've experienced it or you're put in that situation, you'd be able to truthfully answer it. Here, here's the here's the problem that, that people think, well, I can take the easy way out. Mm-hmm. You can take the easy way out, but you lose your self-respect and your self-esteem, and you're never the person you were ever again. Right. I couldn't handle that. Yeah. I'm proud to be who I am. I like the guy that I am. Yeah. When I was in prison, people would ask me, Roadblock, who's your hero? 
<laughs> I tell them I see him every time I look in the mirror. <laughs> and it was a hard battle. I mean, overcoming all, all the, the problems that you face and the opportunities that you face to, to blame somebody else for what you did. But right. nobody makes us commit crime. Anytime you commit a criminal act, it's an individual decision yourself. Right. Commit that crime. So, like the old saying, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That's the way I see it. Truth. And I feel like I set the standards on the street. I set the standards when it comes time to pay the price. Now I'm setting the standards that I feel like anybody can do when they get out. Mm -hmm. I'm moving forward in my life, and my family is proud of the way I'm doing now, and I'm happy. I'm meeting a lot of good people that ride motorcycles. Harley-Davidson dealerships have been good to me. I do a lot of events at Harley shops. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, not many people could could go through what you've been through and then be able to come out and be where you're at. I think it's it's not only unique, but it shows uh, the strength of your character. So, Roblox, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about um, you know motorcycles in the '70s. I mean, you know, we know you built your first bike and you got um, got with these these bikers. And but what was what was it like, you know, owning and riding a motorcycle in the '70s? Well. Owning a bike was was a lot different than a car because of the freedom that you felt when you were riding it. Mm -hmm. But the motorcycles then you had to work on them pretty pretty often. In fact, if you did a lot of preventive maintenance, you could get quite a few quite a few miles out of one without having any problems. But you had to work on them constantly, keeping everything tightened up and everything because most of the stuff that we had was, was so old. And then in, in one period of time when, when uh, they had uh, the uh, AMF or whatever it is mm -hmm. involved in it, they were pretty crappy. <laughs> but just about anybody, they, they were pretty simple to work on. And you could, you could, you could just about fix anything on the, on the thing with just, you know, for hardly any money. Like a, you could get a decent motorcycle for a couple of hundred for you know for a few hundred dollars, where now it's it's a few thousand. Right. And the the bikes, what we had to do was because we rode so many long miles, was change the gearing on them, you know, to to keep the RPMs down, mm -hmm. so that, that the engines didn't wear out as quick, and you could go long long you could run pretty hard and go quite a few miles without having a problem. But uh, there were so many combinations. You had the liquored carburetors that were on the pan heads and all. They didn't have an accelerator pump in them. You had the engine gag when you twist the throttle and stuff like that, right? Yeah. On mine, yeah. I took a, a, I had a, an adapter that fit a, a Bendix carburetor. Mm -hmm. And I cut about four inches out of that, so the carburetor actually set up as close to the motorcycle engine instead of out under my knee or something, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> with the accelerator pump in it, it worked a lot better. And just little things like that. I, I've, I've seen guys take a set of uh, old um, the knuckleheads. They have an 80 cubic inch knucklehead. Mm -hmm. And you can take and fit the, the wheels off the 80 cubic inch into a pan head, right, and have an 80-inch pan head. Nice. You see all kind of adaptations and stuff like that, right? 
and you didn't have any electric start until uh, 65. 65 was the first year they had electric start. Hmm. And on the old ones, you had a problem with oiling on the heads because they oiled up through the cylinders. Mm -hmm. And then 64, they came out with the outside oilers directly to your heads to to oil your rocker arms and stuff. Mm -hmm. That worked a lot better. It was just plenty of stuff to work on. <laughs> and uh, obviously, like we, we were talking about in, in uh, previous conversations, you know, everybody carried a tool bag. Oh, yeah. You had to have tools. You know, you get on the road, somebody's going to break down. Yeah. So usually different people had different wrenches and stuff like this in a pack, right? You'd find somebody that had one for the head bolts, you know, the curved wrench that took the head bolt, took special wrenches and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you always carried you an extra uh, master link for your chain. Cause, and what would happen is, is things would, would get loose. And a lot of people, when they built their bike, they used the same lock washers and stuff that were that they had on when they tore them down, right? Because mm -hmm. most of these bikes were economy bikes, mm -hmm. right? And so everything everything would vibrate loose and move around. You'd have to tighten it up and have to readjust everything every once in a while to keep it from vibrating and stuff. Mm -hmm. The top motor mount, simple things like that. I'll tell you, uh, the funniest experience I had with my panhead is I just started riding. So I went to a bar with, with a, a bunch of the guys from the chopper shop. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys from the club that I, that I later joined was there. I'd come out of the bar to start my motorcycle, and it wouldn't start. Mm. I had a pretty good buzz, and I knew everything was supposed to spread away. So I kicked until I sobered up. <laughs> and then I pulled the, the 65 had a, a, a centrifugal advanced distributor. Right? Before that, you had to retard your distributor to fire it off to keep it from kicking back on you. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the, pulled the cap off the distributor, and there was a piece of cardboard between my ignition points. <laughs> And everybody's around sticker. This is the new guy deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Did yeah. you did you ever forget to uh, advance after you retarded it? Ever forget to readvance it? I never had one with, with manual advance. I saw plenty of other people that did. Yeah. All I did is it just wouldn't run wouldn't run out of a out of a shower, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> the time was so far retarded it was just it, it didn't have any power. Yeah. But if you didn't you could uh, mess up your knee pretty quickly. Yeah. It would kick you back hard if the timer was too far advanced. What uh, What were the, some of the, you know, well, let me back up a second. A lot of guys, you know, they call uh, chopping, you know, nowadays or choppering. Um, you know, it's basically the um, kind of the practice of bringing in your bike and, and, you know, chopping the fender, putting a different tank on, bars, things like that. What were the type of chops that were being performed, you know, back in the seventies? Well, then the big the big thing was 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 having uh, low sleek uh, uh, a hardtail frame, right? Either the wishbone or the straight leg frame. Mm -hmm. Mold your frame. I mean, some awesome looking choppers, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's just kind of like, oh, well, let's just chop it, and that's a chopper. Mm -hmm. Then a chopper was something that looked nice, right? Mm -hmm. You mold the frame, you do decent paint jobs and stuff like that on it, put a little chrome on it. You gotta realize nobody today even knows what a mouse trap is. <laughs> right? Yep. I happen to know, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> explain. 
That's what made the clutch work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you broke a clutch cable, you could actually work it with your hand. Mm. Right? Yeah. But today you just got a clutch cable. When you break a clutch cable, you gotta you gotta go somewhere. Yeah. You gotta get a cable to replace it. You can't ride it. Right. Well, how about um you know, I mean, obviously, on these machines, on these bikes that you guys are riding, um, you know, you lived uh, in an age or in an era that was definitely sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What was that like? I mean, what was the lifestyle like? Well, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of pretty girls, <laughs> right? and a lot of problems. It was, it was a pretty violent era. You had all these Vietnam vets that had just returned, right, mm -hmm. and they were completely disrespected by the hippie culture. Mm -hmm. So they kind of had an attitude and they had all these guys with these specialized skills and all and they used them occasionally. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And they they just, they, they when, when you formed a brotherhood like that, it was like, well, us and the citizens, right? Right. You, it just wasn't open. I mean, you didn't care what they thought or anything like that. You, you were in your world and they, they pretty much stayed in theirs if they were smart. Right. But uh, I don't know. I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> it fit my person, personality at the time. What um, what were, like, if you have any uh, stories of maybe, you know, an incident or two that, that you feel comfortable with sharing um, from that era? Uh, and we can well, all, we, most I, of the stuff I'll talk about is writing. Mm-hmm. Just, just stop and think you're going from Florida to, to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. You come out of Florida and you put together a pack. The state planes following you along the interstate. <laughs> Every exit has a cop car waiting there to see if you're going to turn off on their area, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that all the way up. And, and we run, we run hard. They didn't bother us for speeding, but... Uh, they just didn't want to stop it in their area. <laughs> I have a, um, there's a, a story that my pops was, has told me a few times about that same thing where, you know, they'd be coming through, uh, orange or, or getting off the freeway here, or even riding down, uh, Chapman or something. And police, they get a police escort all the way through until they left town. Cause they didn't well, want them. They harassed you pretty. They harassed us pretty much doing their little field interrogation reports and all like that, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it was got to be kind of a game between us and them. It's more more like more like what it was then instead of the, the, today. Today it's they got all this little fancy little military stuff and all like that. And then it was just police officers doing their job and us doing our job. Their job was to put us in jail and our job was not to go. <laughs> right. Kind of a, kind of a cat and mouse type game. Yeah. But it, it was, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like, like it is today. Today it's just totally different. It's, it's almost like that you're an enemy of the state or something other like that today. Mm -hmm. And then it was just kind of like, well, we're going to keep you, you know, remind you that we're here yeah. and stuff like that. Right. Well, let's um, let's actually talk about that because I think this is not only is this a um, a huge part of your life, but it you know it, it kind of segues from a lifestyle and you know riding into um, into your conviction. So, 
how did how did all that come together with Rico and what was going on at the time? Okay, in 1976, when they first started coming out with uh, these narcotic undercover narcotic task squads, mm-hmm. the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department had this narcotics task squad that decided that they that despite the many times they had busted us at the clubhouse, that we actually kept drugs at the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And they were determined to find them. And they had this theory that, as it came out in the RICO case, they had this theory that if they got in the door before they announced their presence, that they would find drugs. Mm-hmm. So and, uh, we had this young kid, 26 years old, that was celebrating his birthday. And the next morning, about 8 o'clock, they slid up in a van and run out, and they were dressed just like bikers. We'd had somebody do a drive-by shooting a couple of days before, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody was pretty much expecting a problem. So the the kid woke up. I mean, the kid heard the noise. Like in the front doors, we had French glass doors, mm-hmm. but we didn't lock them. All they had to do was open the doorknob and walk in. Right. So they're in up there pecking out the glass with their pistols and stuff like that, and they get his attention. He thinks it's a, a some of the competition coming and. Everybody's going to get killed. Mm-hmm. So he fires them up and shoots three police officers. They shoot him. Mm-hmm. Right? And then I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there where I was at. I was in Jacksonville when that come down. They tried to claim that I got away in the middle of the shootout on my motorcycle and all that stuff. But it never went anywhere. But they tried this kid. They shot him in the head with a forty-four. All right. They tried to, to do a civil case against him, you know, for damages and stuff like that, because the narcotics task squad leader ended up getting shot in the spine and, and turned him into a paraplegia, right? Mm-hmm. So they tried to, to prosecute him on a civil basis. They couldn't because how do you prosecute somebody where you shot him in the head and a third of his brain is actually destroyed? I mean, yeah, he doesn't have any memory of anything. He's crippled and blind in one eye. And they're trying to prosecute this kid. That, that they come in there like gangbusters and shot, right? Right. So it didn't work. Things were pretty heavy for a while there. They really, really, they were really upset about getting a police officer shot, and I was pretty upset about getting a police officer shot and my club member mm-hmm. because it was a stupid move, and it was the first time they'd ever done anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. So later on, then they. The government, the federal government, declared this guy mentally competent, even though he was brain damaged, mm-hmm. to stand trial and gave him 35 years. Wow. He died in federal prison. Wow. That's ridiculous. So that that kind of like set the perimeters between me and, and the federal police agencies. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a total different ball game. I mean, the the local cops usually are, are doing their job. That's their job to protect the citizens and stuff like that. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have any animosity towards them. But the guys that want to to engineer criminal activity mm-hmm. so they can get a conviction and stuff like that, that bothers me. Exactly. So how did they um, how did they tie you to all this? Because you were obviously you weren't even there at the time. I was in a leadership position. Mm. So they said, what the parole commission, when, when I got busted, the parole commission determined that I should be held responsible for the entire enterprise conduct. 
In fact, one one parole officer said that I should be held responsible for the criminal acts of the entire Outlaws Motorcycle Club. Wow. Whether I was involved in it or whether I even knew about it or anything. I mean, that's the way they treat it. Mm -hmm. And I did my time because I didn't accept their deal. And I didn't roll over and testify against my brothers and testify against everybody I know. Mm-hmm. You know what? Nobody made me do what I did. Right. Well, now, mm-hmm. at this same time, I mean, during, I guess it was around like 1983. I know we were discussing this beforehand. Around 1983, just prior to that, um, they were trying to do the same thing to another uh, 1% club here in California. Yeah. Yeah, in, in California, they, they the first club they ever indicted on the RICO statutes was the Hells Angels there in California. Mm-hmm. And those guys had pretty good lawyers, and the government didn't have their act together like they did when they come to Florida. But they, they tried to convict Sonny and, and the, the guys in that club, mm-hmm. but they missed the boat at that time. Later on, they, they were, did successfully prosecute them, but... Not at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And then when they come to Florida, they come. There was no way you could beat what they put together there. When you got the entire amount of the federal government against you, and they select you for, they are determined to to destroy you or put you in prison for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's a battle. Yeah. <laughs> and if they use the RICO statutes, the RICO statutes were originally designed. Or organized crime, the mafia, uh, domestic terrorists, the drug cartels, and all like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Reagan was the first, his uh, administration was the first deal to use the RICO statutes against motorcycle clubs. Hmm. And in my opinion, it's based on the embarrassment that he suffered when his daughter was a was hanging around with the motorcycle club there in California yeah. while he was governor of California. So he kind of so, had a personal, uh, he had some, yeah, some I, personal I think, I think it was a personal vendetta against the motorcycle club because as soon as he come into office, the attorney general had listed the top four motorcycle clubs mm-hmm. as criminal organizations and posted them where they could use the RICO statutes to prosecute them. And they've used them ever since and they use them against everybody now. Yeah. To start off with, there was there was four clubs that were considered uh, criminal uh, outlaw criminal motorcycle clubs. Mm-hmm. Now there are over five hundred clubs for that. You think category, right? You think that their plan kind of backfired a little bit? Well, it kind of it's like any government plan that they come up with. When when you select a group of individuals in uh, free society for special mm-hmm. attention, mm-hmm. you have to go full bore with it until it, the wheels run off of it. Yeah. It's just like the war on drugs. Now then, all these people that are convicted felons behind smoking marijuana and, and that kind of stuff, now you can go to Colorado and get it in the bar or whatever. I mean, what's the deal there? Yeah. What happens to those people that, that were convicted and are sitting They're in prison still? Felons for life. Yeah. If you, if you get a felony, a federal felony, mm-hmm. there is no redemption you can never get your, it doesn't matter what you do, how good a citizen you are the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Anytime you fill out an application, they ask you if you've ever been convicted of a crime. 
and you have to put down there that you've been convicted of a drug crime, it's a stigma that'll stay with you as long as you live. Hmm. So there's 70 million Americans that are convicted doing a life sentence as a convicted felons in in the United States right now. Wow. Almost close to 20% of the population in the United States is convicted felons. Wow. Oh, no, it's not a police state, right? Right. Yeah, we, we have freedoms. We, we're free. We're a free country. We don't smoke marijuana now, but what about all the people we put in prison for smoking it? Yeah. How do they find redemption? Yeah, they don't. Yeah. In state, sometimes in state you can get a you can you, sometimes you can clean up your case and get get a governor to, to grant you clemency, right? Mm-hmm. But the only way you can clean up a federal crime is if the president gives you a presidential pardon. Yeah. And you and I know what kind of money that costs. Or even yeah, even the fact that uh, I I have no confidence that a current president or even past presidents would even waste the time. Well. They do on a lot of people, but it's people above our pay grade. Sure. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Well, what's... So the, the Justice Department of the United States is broken, and nobody's really trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're using the same practice against American citizens that our military guys are using against the enemies in foreign countries. Blast down your door, kick it in, come in and shoot anybody that doesn't comply with you immediately. Right. Okay. The big problem is our returning military veterans are trained to react to that immediately. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes in, kicks in your door with a gun in your hand and pull through a bomb or something other, and you're close to a gun and you're a military guy mm-hmm. in America, you're supposed to be able to defend yourself against something like that. Right. Every article that I've read when the, the shooting is justified is, well, he had a gun, and any time we see what we pose to be a threat, we're killing him. Right. It's justified. Justified homicide. How is it justified homicide when you're serving a search warrant for narcotics to kill anybody there that doesn't comply with you immediately? Hmm. Especially when you're trained by the military to do the same thing that they do in these foreign countries. Right. All these uh, paramilitary SWAT teams are trained by the military. The same guys that took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They train these guys to use those tactics against American citizens. Hmm. One of my neighbors told me, he said, Roadblock, aren't you afraid they're going to kill you for your beliefs? I told him, I wasn't afraid before. Why would I be afraid now? Hmm. That's all they can do. And if they do, then I'm hoping there's somebody else will step up and voice my opinions. Well, I don't think you're alone in your opinions, Roblox. I think that um, we're at a, a very interesting and unique time in history of America where I, th- I have seen, at least across the Internet, a lot of people starting to either repeat the ideas of others that I've read or they're, they're waking up and seeing the fact that we don't truly have freedom, that our civil liberties and our rights, um, which are uh, ascribed to us in the Bill of Rights as well as our constitutional rights, have have been either eroded away, are being eroded away, and are being taken away, even as you and I are talking now. Let me tell you one of the important things. that When I first started writing about this, they were getting to where they were using biker apparel as justification for stopping motorcycles and stuff like this. If you were wearing leather, black leather biker apparel, mm-hmm. 
you were a gang member. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was that that bad, right? And they would pull you over and stuff like this. I never did see anywhere in any of the constitutional stuff that I've read where clothing or appearance or who you associated with justified that kind of conduct. Right. In fact, I think that's referred to as profiling. In the last time I checked, that, oh, no, uh, not if it, not if you ride a motorcycle. That's not profiling. That's just good law enforcement. <laughs> they'll tell you. Yeah. Well, we have to keep them. We have to. We have to use what tools we can. Okay. Let me tell you the, uh, another thing that they do. Okay. They they bring a guy that's guilty of murder or multiple murders in, and give him immunity to testify. They give him immunity on those murders for killing all these people to testify against people for dealing drugs or or minor stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So that guy doesn't pay for his crime because he's a good guy. Hmm. He works for the government. And they say, well, we have to use these kind of people because nobody else is involved. But they don't tell you how far that this guy will go and let the prosecutor lead him on what he's testifying to. Hmm. So it's kind of like it doesn't matter. You you don't have to be responsible for your crime if you get on the eighteen. Right. As long as you're, it's uh, you gotta you gotta choose who you're gonna play for. <laughs> but I love to ride my motorcycle, and I'm gonna ride just as long as I can. I think that sounds like a good plan because that's uh, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast. That's exactly how they feel. They love motorcycles. They love riding, and and I, I really having you on this show. Um, is a not only a benefit from a motorcyclist standpoint, but also from from just uh, being a human being and living in this country. Um, hopefully, it will uh, having you on the show will kind of wake a few people up and maybe to start researching a little bit on their own. Mike, I'm gonna tell you what was the funniest thing I've learned about motorcycles. Before I went to prison, you never hardly saw women riding, mm-hmm. and I hear a lot of these hardcore guys talk about I'm not gonna ride with a Woman, so they don't you don't use that phraseology, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm thinking I come home and I met a couple of girls that ride, and I thought, well, I'll just ride with them and see how they ride. Mm-hmm. So we're riding down the road, and I pull over a little bit against against this girl that's riding beside him and see how she reacts. Mm-hmm. She rides just as smooth, right? <laughs> and I watch the way she breaks and all like that, and I'm thinking. Well, I know some guys I wish could ride that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so it, it, it's kind of exciting to me to see everybody out just riding. Even you know, I don't care if, if people enjoy the uh, feeling they get when they're riding a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I'm there with them. It, it's a different feeling from anything I've ever done. I can remember in prison hearing a motorcycle come by. Mm-hmm. The executioner, if somebody that rode a motorcycle visited somebody, just the sound of that thing I'm talking about, it was something to attract attention. I work in a downtown area, and I always see DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security vehicles, as well as uh, the sheriff's buses, you know, coming from the courts back out to the jails. And anytime I'm riding, I um, I don't know if there's someone on board the bus that may be looking, you know, just for that little hint of like... Uh, sound of a motorcycle or whatever, but I always make sure I, I split the lanes and get up there next to it and, you know, just so they can hear it running. Yeah. Makes but you feel good anyway, don't it? It does. I mean, of course I feel good because I'm, I'm riding. <laughs> um, 
you know, Roadblock, I, I, first of all, I want to say thank you for being on the show. And um, I know this will not be the last time we have you on. You know, we've talked about some stuff that we may do here in the, in the near future. And I think that um, our listeners will, will thoroughly enjoy it. And it not only will enjoy it, but it will also educate them. Um, is, is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with uh, before we, we end our interview? Well, all I can say is that if you ride, think about where the where everything's going, ride safe, have a good time, and remember, freedom is not free. You have to earn it. That's heavy. Um, it reminds me of uh, of something you mentioned a little earlier, and uh, it, it's something that uh, a gentleman said. Uh, he was actually a pastor. His name was Martin Niemöller. He lived from 1892 to 1984. Uh, he was a he was a Protestant pastor. Uh, who emerged uh, as an outspoken public foe against Adolf Hitler. Uh, He spent the last years of his life in in Nazi rule concentration camps. And he says, um, one of the quotes he's most remembered for, he says, uh, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. That's pretty much the way it is now. Yep. Well, Roblox, thank you so much for being on Chopper Profits. Um, again, I will, uh, I'll put a link up uh, for your books and stuff on the site, and uh, people can find you. Um, wh- what's the name of your website again, if you wouldn't mind? WTRoadblockHerald.com is my book site. And my political activist side is freeroadblock.us. Awesome. And we'll put those links up also on uh, on the site. And so people can, uh, you know, take a look at your books, purchase your books, and give them a read. I'm going to be reading through them here. i got my pops reading one right now. And, and I've got the second book uh, sitting right in front of me. So, yeah. on, on my political activist site, there's quite a bit of information on there about the RICO prosecutions and... Uh, a lot of other informative stuff that what people don't realize is that when you're out here, you see everything through a tunnel mm-hmm. because that's directly what affects you. Mm-hmm. When you've got the time to think like I had to think, you begin to think differently because you can see a lot broader picture of what's going on than just what happens to you on a daily basis. Right. And if people start thinking about what's really going on around them, they can really make a difference. Those true words of wisdom right there. Thank you, Roblox, for being on. Um, and we will be hearing from you uh, in the very near future. Okay, thank you, Mike.